Basics series. Tonight we will be talking about following Jesus. Uh, and this is a lesson about becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, as Jesus traveled throughout Israel, urging people to repent and believe the gospel, follow me was a constant refrain in his message. In fact, 22 times in the Gospels, seven times in Matthew, four times in Mark, four times in Luke, and then seven times in John, for a total of 22 times, the, the term or the two words, follow me, occur there. But what's also interesting is that over 50 times, the idea of following Jesus occurs uh, in the message. So, at the beginning of his ministry, he called his first disciples with this command. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And that's in Matthew 4, 19. But as his ministry progressed, he told the crowds, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And that's, that's the pivot point of, of Mark, Mark 8. 34, and then at the end of his earthly ministry, he recommissioned the repentant Peter with these words, follow me, in John 21, 9. You see, following Jesus begins when we respond to his call to repent and believe the gospel. When Jesus is asking us to join him in his death, burial, and resurrection. He actually pours the Holy Spirit into us and expects us from then on to be following after him. The good news that God loves us and has taken the initiative to reconcile us to himself by giving his son to atone for our sins awakens us to God's love. And this moves us to want to live for Christ and to follow him. And what I've actually, in my notes here, what I've, I've put is, and this, our sin awakens us, or to atone for our sins awakens us to God's love, and this should move us to want to live for Christ and follow him. That should be a point when we go down into the watery grave of baptism, and our sin has been taken away from us, we should be jubilant when we come up out of the grave because God's act in nature has, has happened and all we should be thinking at that point is hallelujah. What I want to tell you tonight is the Bible shows us how to follow Jesus in our daily lives. What I want to mention is that the discipleship uh, in relationship to Jesus is not a compartmentalized, one-off-per-week event. When you become a disciple of Jesus, you sign up for 24-7. So two things stand out, I believe, as we start trying to begin a study concerning following him. Two things we have to uh, understand quickly is that we must understand and obey his teaching. If we don't actually hear his word, hear his commands, hear the things that he lived out and studied, 
then we miss the essence of what we need to do. But secondarily, we must model our lives after the example of his life. So we have to understand the commands of God, but we also should look at the model that Jesus showed us. In Matthew 7, 24 through 27, the scripture reads, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now, and everyone hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall. You see what Jesus is beckoning us in Matthew 7 uh, in the Great Commission is this. You have to hear what he has to say. You can't neglect it. You have to listen for it. You have to seek out after his word. You have to immerse yourself into it. But it's, only, it's not only a matter of, of hearing. What he's telling us also is you have to do what he says. Hear and do. But that's not all. That's not all that he has for us as we continue to look at Scripture. He says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. That's in John 13, 14, and 15. And when I read that, and he tells us about being an example, and he talks about washing others' feet, the, the first thing I do is go, because I, I think of my own feet and you know, the fact that they are in the shoes that I wear so often uh, without socks. I think, wash other people's feet? Jesus wants us to wash feet. But what he's telling us there is he wants us to become a servant. He wants us to take the role in the household of one who is servicing and taking care of the needs of people. But it goes further than that. It goes even deeper because what he's telling us is if you're going to be like me, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, you have to humble yourself. You have to put on that apron, and you have to get down on your knees, and you have to get down where things are dirty. Because if you're a disciple of mine, you have to be willing to get dirty for other people as you engage their lives. In fact, what he's telling us is, is that we have to be willing to do the hardest jobs that we come across. So as, as we look at this, what he's telling us is, is that we must also do as he did. That's what he actually says uh, in the foot washing scenario. 
do what I do. As John puts it, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. That's in 1 John 2, verse 6. For obeying and imitating are not ends in themselves, but are a means to a greater end. That end or goal of discipleship is to become like Jesus himself. And quite, quite quickly, what that means is that we need to think as he thought when he was here in this world. Also, looking at where he was and what he was doing, we need to feel as he felt. We need to act as he acted. We need to desire what he desired. I don't know about you, but as I look at this, I, I, I get overwhelmed because God is calling us to do this discipleship project with our lives, and it seems at times that maybe it's burdensome. But then I look and I understand he also gave me eternal life. As we are still considering this, uh, because Jesus is the image in human form, we, become, we should become more and more like him. Uh, the image of God is increasingly restored in our lives. In other words, as we model after the great model of Jesus Christ, uh, the idea of Imagio Dei, that is the image of God, made in the image of God. That's what this whole book in the Old Testament starts off. God made man in his image. And then God allowed us choice. And God allowed us to sin. And in that, we actually went our own way for a while. But what God wants us to do is to come back. To come back home. Hebrews 1.3 says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Jesus, when he was on this earth, was what God wanted him to be, and that was to be as much like God as he could be. In Colossians 1.15, it says this. Jesus is the, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so as disciples, we are working on and working towards being as much like Jesus as we can. And in that process, what we're doing is trying to become more like God. Not supplanting God, not taking over for God. God, God doesn't need us to take over. God needs us to, to worship him, to love him, and to follow after his son. So as we are looking at this, there are two defining characteristics of Jesus' life that stand out with striking clarity. Those two characteristics are faith and love. And, and what we have to be is secure in the love of God and his own sonship. What we know is that Jesus lived with an unshakable faith in his heavenly Father 
and wholehearted love for God and others. So let's try to unpack that, try to understand what and how can we actually further our own relationship with God and how can we have faith and love be characteristic of our lives. So if we want to become like Jesus, faith and love must be defining characteristics characteristics of our lives also. So as Jesus lived his daily life in conscious, trusting dependence on his Father in heaven, we can see four things that actually happened there. First of all, Jesus' resistance to the devil's temptation in the wilderness reveals an unshakable faith in God and his word. And that's in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Secondarily, Jesus' dependence on the Father in the raising of Lazarus from the dead, he actually cried out to Father for help at different times. That's in John 11, 40 through 43. We also see Jesus' confidence that his Father would raise him from the grave. We see that in Mark 8, 31. But we also see that Jesus agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane wanting to be spared, but submitting to his Father's will on the cross. That's in Luke 22, 39 through 46. So Jesus not only lived a life of faith before his disciples, he called them to live a life of faith as well. And that's what a, a leader does. He makes people accountable for what they're doing in relationship to what they're supposed to be doing. You see, Jesus called the disciples to an active, living faith in their heavenly Father in the affairs of everyday life. For daily bread or power to heal the sick, cast out demons, or to overcome the perils of nature, they were to live by faith and to grow in faith. In Matthew 10, he sends them out he anoints them and tells them that they have the powers that he does, and then he tells them, uh, and he doesn't give them a, a mule and a lot of supplies. He just says, go. Go and do these things. And as the disciples went out, each challenge they encountered was an opportunity for growth. What we see a lot of times with the disciples, they were slow to learn the lessons of faith. And most of us, I believe, probably identify with them and quickly give them a pass as they make their mistakes in the gospel message. But one thing is for certain as I look at it, Jesus never did. He never gave them uh, an immediate pass as they were doing the troubling things that they were doing. When the disciples were in danger of drowning in the storm in the Sea of Galilee, Jesus scolded them for their fear and lack of faith. And when they were unable to cast out a demon, he told them it was due to their lack of faith. The first is in Mark 4.35, the second is in Matthew 
14 through 21. As, as the waves are crashing around, Jesus is asleep and they wake him up. And then after he stills the storm, they're questioning, who is this man? So growing in faith is, was a very important part of maturing as a disciple. He expected them to grow in faith as they saw his mighty deeds. And he expected them to have faith that God would answer their prayers. And I think it's, it's similar for us. As we, as we are reading through the New Testament, as we are reading through the, the Gospels, the religious history behind Jesus, we should ooh and ah as we actually read those stories. It's not fiction, it's fact. And notice too that he expected them to have faith, that God would answer the prayers. They, he, he was, as he was praying, his expectation is that they knew that God would answer. Now, the major defining characteristics of Jesus' life was love. And Jesus lived a life of love. The two components of that love is, first of all, he loved his father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Secondarily, he loved others and sought their good. These are, these are if you want to know who Jesus is, this is Jesus in a nutshell. Love of the Father, love of others. You see, this cornerstone on Jesus' teaching on love is found in the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And a second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. As I look at it, it is seemingly simple. Simple. He tells us there are two things that you need to do. Just two things. That's all you need to do. And I don't know about you, uh, it, uh, when I have a, a to-do list and I only have two things on it, I can procrastinate around those things for weeks at a time before I actually get them done. God gives us two things. Love God with all you have. And I can, as, as I work on that one issue I can find all kinds of reasons not to. Questions of theodicy come up where the evil in this world is so great. Why would God be involved in those things? Or the idea is that, well, just because we have literally thousands of manuscripts, could the Bible really be true? Well, the idea that I have come to or the thoughts that I have come to is, is, is definitely, first of all, theodicy. God has purpose and plan in everything that he does. The things that God does, I don't always agree with, but guess what? God does not need me to ever agree with him. The second thing is, is that God, God has expectations of what we need to be doing. And we need to do those. Jesus teaches us that God still seeks the wholehearted love 
of his people and that responding to his love is to be our highest priority. So we should spare no efforts in seeking to grow in love towards God. And as you sit there uh, at home right now as you're listening to this, or as you sit here with the folks that are in the crowd here in the building, well, I don't know if I would call it a crowd, but with the uh, dozen or so people here in the building, you may wonder how you could possibly love God the way that he wants to love. How can we love him when he has such high expectations of what we need to do? Paul tells us that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's in Romans 5, 5. And this love grows as we continue to live a gospel-centered life. Meditating on and reminding ourselves daily of God's love for us and God's sacrifice for us. Think about this. The reason, the reason that you're able to love God, remember you, you actually in Romans 6, you met Jesus at the cross. You died, you were buried, you were resurrected, and the gift of the Holy Spirit came upon you. God poured out his love and his ability into you at that point. He fills you up with the Holy Spirit. At times, I wish I had a funnel so he could continue to pour more Holy Spirit into me. But then there are times when I think that would be awful scary. Again, Romans 5.5, 5, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. A lot of times we, we focus on the fact that it is all about what I have to do, how I need to respond, how I am carrying all the burdens of life along with me, and then we come to a verse like Romans 5, and what it says is, you have help. You don't have to face the burdens of life alone because God has put the Holy Spirit within you and the Holy Spirit wants to help you. So what does this kind of love look like in our daily lives? The answer may surprise you because I believe it centers around one thing, obedience. Obedience to God's will as found in Scripture According to the Bible, I believe obedience is the acid test of true love for God. Jesus makes this clear when he says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. That's John 14, 15. So the Apostle John also says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. 1 John 5, verse 3. So if we love God, his commands will not be burdensome or irksome to us. Rather, we will desire to obey him. And so the question then, in my mind, is, do you desire to obey God and bring him pleasure through your obedience? Is that where you're living today? Is that where you are? 
You see, the more we ponder and marvel at the good news of the gospel, the more we should want to please him. The second part of the great commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves, originates in Leviticus 19.18 and reflects the nature of God and his deep concern that we seek the good of others and bless them. Most people are confused about what it means to love our neighbor, thinking what that it means to feel emotional warmth, sympathy, or closeness toward your neighbors. However, the type of love, that is agape love, that is, that is presented here is not primarily emotional in nature. It is chiefly a choice, an act of the will. It is acting in the best interest of the person, seeking their good, regardless of how you happen to feel toward them. Jesus makes this clear when he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And that's in Matthew 7, 12. Feelings often do arise in the wake of our actions. But it is the action, not the feeling, that is most important. This simple but profound guideline will show us our duty in nearly every case. What I'm saying is if you are uh, acting upon things and expecting uh, a warm, fuzzy feeling as you are doing those, I'm going to tell you that you are probably barking up the wrong tree. A lot of times, benevolence work, when you are helping those that are downtrodden, those that are hurting, those that are oppressed, those that are depressed, those that are angry, a lot of times, it's going to be a big mess. And the warm, fuzzy feelings you were wanting uh, will uh, be actually shattered and cast away. But have joy in that knowing what you're doing there is what God wants you to do. Also, loving friends or even strangers is not nearly so difficult as loving our enemies. But remember that Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. He goes down further uh, in that text and says, don't even the tax collectors do the same. You'll see this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 43 through 48. And what he's telling us is, is that we have to love our enemies. We have to pray for them. We have to hope that they find God and eternal life also. So we see ourselves as loving people because we love family and friends. But Jesus says that is not enough. Citing the love that God bears for even for his enemies, Jesus calls us to resist the fleshly temptation to hate our enemies. Instead, he asks us to imitate our Heavenly Father by loving them. But as we act in the obedience of faith to please our Father, His Spirit will work in us and change our attitude toward our enemies. Such love glorifies God. 
Becoming perfect in love means growing into a mature love for others, which is a lifelong journey, but one on which we can make remarkable progress. Loving your enemies is not easy. Because as you are trying to love on them, they may actually cast stones at you. Their swords may be wielded. Their words may make you weary. But God calls us to love our enemies. Jesus also gave his disciples a new standard for loving one another. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have also loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. And that's also in John 13, 34 and 35. You see, this lifts love to its highest degree. We are to show the same self-sacrificing love toward fellow believers as Jesus has shown toward us. A few verses later, he reiterates this and elaborates. He says, this is my, uh, my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. John 15, 12 through 13. See, it's getting personal at this point. Loving others makes us willing to lay down our life for them. And as we are contemplating this, he's also told us that we have to love our enemies. Where is Jesus going with this? A lot of times as we think about love, it's assumed that we are in pursuit of meeting the needs of fellow believers for food, for clothing, for shelter, and for medical care. But John, for example, says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It, it goes further than we even think. If we have stuff and people need stuff and we want to hang on to our stuff because it's our stuff, what he's telling us is that the love of God is not within us. That's in 1 John 3, 11 through 18. In this section, as we're looking at it, Jesus is about to lay down his life for them and tells them, that they are to lay down their lives for their brothers and sisters in the family of God. Over the centuries, there have been times when this was fulfilled literally. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I believe that fulfillment of this has happened in the past few weeks. I've read stories about what has gone on in Christian churches in Afghanistan. There have been churches there where Muslims have come in, people of the Islamic faith, and have made them choose to either follow uh, Allah or to follow Jesus. And when they followed Jesus, they were killed. 
This kind of love, says Jesus, demonstrates to the world that we are truly his disciples. And the unity that such love produces witnesses to the uh, world that God has sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world. Willing to die, willing to use your assets, willing to help people who are hurting is how we bring the message of Jesus into reality in the 21st century. If we are honest with ourselves, we must admit that there is also a little of this kind of love among believers today. I'm sorry, let me, let me read that. I, I actually said that wrong. We must admit that there is all too little of this kind of love among leader, uh, believers today. Instead, within the church, within our own fellowship, within the global fellowship, there is an abundance of criticism, contention, and division, along with an incontinable neglect of the poor. And yet, many times in discussing why the pews are empty and people are not here, we wonder, we wonder, not wonder, we wonder why non-believers call us hypocrites and refuse to believe. Remembering, though, it is only through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we can obey the teaching of Jesus and follow his example. He assures of his, of his Father's love. He makes the things of Christ real to us. He makes the gospel precious to us. He convicts us of sin and assures us of forgiveness when we repent. He transforms us from glory to glory into the likeness of Jesus. There are many uh, verses in the Bible that bring definition of that following Jesus truly looks like. However, this one probably sums it up the best. Mark 8, 34 through 35. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Here's where the rubber meets the road of discipleship with, with Jesus Christ. You have to be willing to let go. You have to let God be in control. Jesus was speaking to a crowd about the cost of following him. In fact, he said in the following verses that those who would be ashamed of him and his words would be rejected on the other side of this life. Jesus gives us, remember I told you, it, it, this is simple. Two things, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. A second one like it, love your neighbors as yourself. Jesus, when he's telling us, this is how you will become a disciple of me, he says three things, deny yourself. Quit worrying about you as number one. He then says, take up your cross. Okay, that, that means be willing to die for what you believe. And then the last one. Follow him. Remember, he went to the cross. He actually did what he said you need to do. He is an example for us. 
He is willing to pay the price for your sins so that you can be alive and have relationship with God. He also tells us uh, as we are, are actually dying to self, he's not going to leave us hanging. He tells us that he is going to pour in the Holy Spirit. Deny means to separate. And the first step in following Jesus is to forget oneself and interest. This completely goes against your flesh's desire to do that. Your flesh will tell you to put self first, to seek out your own interests, but Jesus beckons us to a different life. He calls us to a life that will put aside self to seek God and serve others. After denying self, we are to take up the cross, which essentially means conform to the example Jesus showed when he sacrificed himself on the cross. Jesus modeled the sacrifice of self for the salvation of others. We can't say that Jesus didn't go the way that he tells us that we need to go. We have to affirm the fact that Jesus was willing to die for the lives of many. Jesus was willing to do what had to be done to save you and me. The question you have to ask yourself when you're following Jesus is this. Would I rather sacrifice eternal security for temporary satisfaction or temporary satisfaction for eternal security? Matthew, Matthew Henry said this. He said, we must dread the loss of our souls. We have to be willing to give it up so that we can follow after Jesus. As we start to wind down, picked out five verses that give us direction on following Jesus. The first one is 1 Peter 2, 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. When you decide to follow Jesus, when he says, follow me, he says, get in my pathway and see how I've done it and go and do it. Be willing to lay down your life and then follow me. 1 John 2, 3 through 4 says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I'll tell you what, everything that we do in this world today says you can't call anyone a liar, but here, here as we're seeing this, Scripture says, if you're not doing what Jesus has asked, but you're saying you are, you are lying, and you are lying to God himself. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. 
wow, be imitators of God, be imitators of Jesus, be willing to do what Jesus wanted you to do, and then what? Walk in love. When you are laying down your life for other people, what you are saying is, I love you. When you are not confronting their sin, when you are letting them to lead a hellish lifestyle, what you're doing is saying that you don't care. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. Don't be conformed to the things of this world. The things of this world cry out to each of us to follow after them and to leave the lifestyle of Jesus behind. Matthew 6, says this, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Put God first. Put God's kingdom first. And try to make your life as righteous as you can. That is uh, cleansing your life and purging your life of all the things that Satan would want you to put in. five things that we just went through. I beckon you to do these. I pray that you do these. First of all, follow in his steps. Look and learn the model of Jesus and start trying to model after that model. The second thing was to keep his commandments. They're written down for us today. Can you imagine not having a Bible, not having any way to actually know a commandment except to memorize it? But we have, we, have it. we have Bibles, we have codified elements that will help you to find what you're looking for. We have all this information, but what God is crying out for us to do is to know them and keep them. But not to sound like a legalist here. He also tells us to walk in love. Walk in love, that is, we must care for others. We must care about their needs. We must help meet their needs. We must love them. He also tells us that walking in love also means that you may need to lay down your life so that an other person, the other person, may find Christ. He tells us also to be holy in all our conduct. And that is that we need to uh, actually review how we live life each day, and I believe what we need to do is make sure we are headed in the right direction. And lastly, Matthew 6.33, seek his kingdom and righteousness. He tells us if we will just do this, all these things will be added to you as well. You'll pray with me. Lord God, again, you are an awesome God. Lord Jesus, you are so profound. We want to live our lives our way. 
but you beckon us, you plead with us, you beg us to come be with you. Lord God, help us to become the disciples that you want us to be. Help us to be the witnesses in the areas that we live. Help us to bring the message where we live. And Lord, help us to love like you do. Lord, most of all, give us the desire to seek you out, find you, and live in righteousness. We pray all this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.